Welcome to the Truth Matters podcast, a guide to misinformation. I'm Shane Creevy, the head of editorial at Kinzen, and I'm your host. I'm Della Kilroy, a journalist with RTE, and I'm also your host. In this, the final episode in the series, we're focusing on solutions to misinformation in the digital age. We'll be hearing from experts working with civil society groups and organizations utilizing technology to combat the harm caused by misinformation. We'll be touching on issues like regulation, platform policies, and technology in this episode. So, Della, we've a lot to get through, but first, uh, let's look at some of the wider issues we need to examine uh, here, because clearly we have an issue with trust in, in modern societies. There are plenty of initiatives working on trust in pretty much every corner of the world now. Uh, but one of the voices on this from a European perspective is the Journalism Trust Initiative. Olaf Steenfat heads the Media Ownership Monitor Project and the Journalism Trust Initiative. He first talked to us about the current state of trust in the media and the role that the internet has in encouraging or discouraging trust. I think digital technology plays a big role for the better or worse. Um, first of all, I mean, it's a, an amazing tool for us journalists to work with in so many ways, starting with research and, you know, finding information. But of course, it is, has also um, deteriorated or even destroyed the underlying business model of journalism, professional journalism and publishing to a large extent. And this means that the whole sector is open for a whole new range of investors in media, which are not out there for profits any longer, but um, are happy to take losses because they see their, their stakes and, and shares in media as an investment in public opinion. And this is where you have a whole new range of oligarchs mixed with political interests, even organized crime, running media outlets as a bargaining chip for other interests. You've been working on solutions in the Journalism Trust Initiative by developing indicators for trustworthiness in journalism. In a world where opinion and beliefs sometimes trump facts, how are you doing this? Um, it might or might not surprise people to hear that there is an abundance of professional norms that exists probably as long as journalism exists. But we are facing two big challenges. One is compliance. And this is what I mean by look into the mirror. Do we as a journalistic community really stick to our own, our, our own norms and professional standards? And what happens if we don't? And the second big, big problem is algorithmic amplification. Because as we, I think, all know by now, search and social media indexation of content, uh, which basically drives our news feeds, is driven by uh, engagement, clicks. And this is usually the exact opposite of ethical journalism. And in order to counter this, we believe it's just not enough to chase the bad and delete harmful content and, and block malicious actors. But in parallel, we also need to support the good. And then the next question is, what is the good? How do you define this? And this is where the Journalism Trust Initiative comes in to provide um, not only professional norms because they exist, but turn them into a machine readable signal that actually can feed into algorithmic selection and indexation of content. I think the first idea that come, would come to mind is a label, like we see it in other industries, you know, uh, hair dryers and toasters and food and, you know, um, uh, what have you. 
interestingly, and this is another part of our learning curve, we de deviated a little bit from the labeling exercise uh, because consumer protection uh, experts told us that actually it can backfire. So if you put a red flag next to a news outlet, it can actually attract people. Those who want to, you know, have the rebels and the, the, the fringe content and a, a green flag can deter them because they would go, yeah, well, this is mainstream, which I don't want. So labeling is quite critical, we believe. And um, for that matter, um, the Journalism Trust Initiative has turned much more into, um, if you wish, a business to business kind of dimension, where we speak much more, as I said earlier, about algorithmic indexation. You need a data channel to, to, to signal a, a, an environment online which is which is brand safe and, and trustworthy and this can then if we can align ad spending to compliance with professional norms in journalism it can actually help to remonetize particularly local journalism worthy of its name what we are developing here is happening anyway big tech companies are making those decisions which news outlet as a source or which piece of content you know, goes up or down in the algorithmic ranking. The only legitimate question is who's making this decision. And we believe that when it comes to journalistic content, it should be the journalistic community itself to define and govern and enforce those criteria. I mean, this is what the Journalism Trust Initiative is basically all about. How important do you think this is now at the stage that we're in where there is an abundance of misinformation? How important is this for democracy? probably maximum this is not i mean we are facing so many i think existential challenges i mean starting with climate change the pandemic now on top biodiversity endless really global threats but how can we address them if our information space is toxic and we cannot even have a proper debate if we cannot even agree on facts how can we address all those other issues um, in the first place. So I think disinformation is kind of a, a, a prerequisite to fix uh, in order to then address everything else that we are struggling with. So Olaf Steenfat says we need to tackle misinformation to be able to tackle any of the other really big global issues that we're dealing with today. So it's not just about taking down misinformation, it's about promoting trust and transparency is what I took from that. Another big challenge in this is the increasing polarization within society, which brings us to Eve Perlman, the co-founder of Spaceship Media. She and her co-founder are longtime journalists, and they set up the organization before the last U.S. election to support healthy conversations between Republicans and Democrats. She believes part of the reason trust has been lost is because of the decline of local journalism in the United States. We talk first about what they're doing to encourage fact-based debate. You know, much has been said and written and agonized about the decline in, in, in journalism, specifically local journalism. Um, and I come out of local journalism. I was a reporter in the town in the San Francisco Bay Area for the bulk of my career. Being part of community and connected to community and um, responsible to community really enabled me to create relationships with the people I served um, and to give them the information they needed to be part of, 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 the, of the functioning democracy of our town and of, our, of the broader culture. And so as people have fewer relationships with journalists, as people don't know journalists, it allows for this um, 
I mean, and this is only one piece of it. It allows for this, I don't know how to describe it properly, like chaos in the ecosystem. We, you know, there's the, the forces are huge and I don't want to overstate my practice. I think there's lots of ways that we need to work on the repair, you know, from regulation of social media platforms to uh, education about government and, and facts and information. So there's lots of work to be done. Our piece is really located in this spot of, of forging connection between divided communities and journalists who serve them. And so our practice is around bringing people together on opposite sides of difficult issues, inviting them into conversation, having journalists moderate that conversation, but also provide information to that conversation. Our work is we partner with news organizations. We post a call out and we say, hey, are you interested in a conversation with people with whom you disagree? And so that immediately removes some percentage of the population, right? So we're not trying to get the most diehard partisan advocate or nefarious people who are trying to sabotage information and dialogue. We're asking people, regular people who are tired of the disharmony, who are tired of fighting with their family members, who are tired of not being able to talk to people at work to come into a conversation. And then we ask people to come in with a really different approach, right? We don't think of our work as a debate or a, a battle. We really think of our work as conversation like you might have with you know you might have with friends but in this case are people you don't know about what and how they think so if can you tell me a little bit about how effective this work is do you have any success stories that you can share i think you've brought people together of opposing perspectives into facebook groups for example has that worked or are there other experiments that you think people should try out i know that the initial big project we did which was a post-election project in the united states that brought trump supporters from the american the american south together in conversation with Clinton supporters from uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, so very liberal, together in conversation, resonated so deeply because um, it showed people that it is possible, right? And that you can talk across divides, you can build community across divides, you can restore that sense of connection and meaning and shared fate. Like we've done a lot of surveys that track attitudinal change um, and they show good results. You know, like people will say, are you more likely to be friends with someone of the opposite party after this? Are you more likely to understand that this person's views come from a good faith place or something? And we, and we see change around that. But I, I would say the things that warm my heart and bring me the most hope are the uh, statements of participants in our groups and also the journalists we've worked with who really talk about how it shifted their thinking and changed how they engage with people and changed how they do their work. But that's just a piece of it. Like the, the challenges are fascinating and remarkable and they have to do with tech and they have to do with human psychology and they have to do with economic issues around, you know, what journalists can do. That was Eve Perlman, co-founder of Spaceship Media. You can find out more about their work on their website, spaceshipmedia.org. Another part of the solution here, from some people's perspective, is regulation. Paddy Learson is a digital media and communications law expert writing about platforms and transparency. Now, he's done PhD research in the field of the regulation of social media platforms. We first asked him what role does or should the government have in relation to trying to stop the spread of false or misleading information. So this is a hugely controversial issue. Um, historically, we've in Western democracies been very skeptical of the idea that governments would be regulating uh, what kind of facts are, are permitted or 
what is the truth, right? There's a classic um, idea of the ministry of truth as a kind of totalitarian nightmare. Um, and that's one of the reasons why regulating disinformation is, is such a controversial issue. At the same time, there's also a strand of thought uh, in, in, in also in European democracies that recognizes that governments have a certain responsibility, not just to refrain from interfering with speech, but also the idea that the government has a responsibility to create a proper enabling environment for people to, to exercise their speech in, a, in an effective way. Right? And that's where things like, like RTE come from, public broadcasting. These are all uh, uh, parts of what we call this positive dimension of the government's responsibility to enable speech as well. Citizens need to have a media environment where they can find reliable sources of information in order to act effectively as citizens. The question, of course, is how do governments uh, take action here? What are the limits here? Uh, certainly, they need to tread cautiously. And I think one of the, the strong points of consensus uh, in this discussion about the role of governments is that uh, there shouldn't be any prohibitions on disinformation. Being wrong or lying is not something that should be illegal. Uh, I think that's something that most people can agree on. And then the question is, what else can you do besides just criminalizing it or banning it to, to maybe make it a more manageable problem? Um, and that's a huge discussion. Uh, uh, so I do think there is a role, but it's not in, in prohibiting disinformation and it needs to be a very cautious role. So what exactly do you think that role is? So there are various things that governments can do. Uh, the basics are things they already do, but maybe they could be doing better. Things like educating school systems, for example, are an essential infrastructure for combating disinformation. Increasingly, perhaps a role in, in funding the necessary journalism, things like the RTE, right, uh, our public broadcasters in other countries. Journalism is something that doesn't seem to be commercially viable. And so uh, as Google and Facebook and other platforms continue to take up more of all the advertising revenue that's generated and less and less of that money is going to newspapers and to uh, broadcasters, I, I think the government also has a role in, in funding the kinds of journalism that are necessary to, to fight, to correct and to, to get the stories right. Um, and perhaps creating new rules to make sure that these platforms uh, become environments in which this, this information can't spread as rapidly. In the EU, we see new legislation been talked about. So what do you think of those, I suppose, weapons? Antitrust laws, the idea here is that uh, another way of, of describing them are anti-monopoly laws, right? So they limit uh, the ways in which uh, companies can dominate a market and create monopolies. And that's, of course, something that's being uh, revised uh, in, in the context of these major new platforms we're seeing, like Google and Amazon, which uh, have a lot of the kind of characteristics of monopolies. Some people suggest that this might be a, a solution to disinformation, because they, they say that uh, because of the size and the scale of these platforms, this makes disinformation more able to spread. I'm kind of skeptical about these arguments, because I wonder whether more competition is going to lead to better information. So imagine if we didn't just have one monopoly like Facebook, but we had many different social media platforms to choose from. The theory is that all these platforms will then be competing for the highest quality of information, most reliable information. But in practice, I'm not sure how that's going to work. If platforms are competing, they might also be competing for what is the most thrilling platform, the most engaging platform. And that kind of competition doesn't necessarily guarantee more high quality information, doesn't guarantee more reliable information. If anything, it might encourage the opposite, right? I, there might be other reasons to do antitrust, but uh, I don't think this information is one of them.
Social media platforms often get criticized for not doing enough to stop the spread of misinformation. What else do you think that they, they might be able to do? Like governments, platforms shouldn't be prohibiting disinformation and they shouldn't be, for instance, removing accounts or banning accounts simply because the information they're sharing is untrue. What else can platforms do? I, I think there are a variety of measures. First of all, uh, there is uh, the question of what's happening with advertising and how uh, money can be used to influence political debate through these platforms, including not just by domestic actors, but also by foreign actors. There can be much stricter controls on how that kind of advertising takes place. Another thing that's happening is fact-checking initiatives, where platforms are increasingly partnering with independent fact-checkers and journalists who try to assess what are reliable sources, what are reliable stories, and what are unreliable ones. And that kind of thing can have a limited effect on, on, on making people less likely to kind of uncritically accept that information. Where I think it gets more problematic is that platforms aren't just adding disclaimers and adding additional information. What they're also doing is that they are um, what they're called downranking information or making it less visible. This means, for instance, that if a source is considered untrustworthy, it is less likely to show up in your recommendations. So for instance, on the front page of YouTube or on the top of your news feed, personally, I, I think this is a bit problematic uh, because from a free speech perspective, I think this is almost as bad as removing the content. So certain information might not be removed from YouTube or might not be removed from Facebook, but it's just much harder to find. And that's because they don't want you to find it. Harry Learson there, a digital media and communications law expert. So while criticized for their role in the spread of false information, social media companies and platforms like Google, Facebook, and Twitter do have policies and procedures in place to try and tackle these issues, but it's an ever-evolving problem. It changes almost every day. Well, we asked a Twitter representative about their role. Ronan Costello is working in senior public policy EMEA, and he told us a little bit about their strategy. I think there's two main things we're doing that are spread across policy and product. We have a harmful, misleading information policy, which goes back a couple of years now and which has continued to be developed as we encounter new trends, new phenomena. So this policy in particular covers uh, civic integrity processes, so we elections, referendums, things like that. Uh, it covers synthetic and manipulated media, which you might call deep fakes. Uh, which are intended to maliciously mislead people into thinking that this person said something they didn't or, you know, something like that. And then, of course, in the last year or so, that policy has ha has added a third pillar, and that's around COVID-19. And around this time last year, that, that addition was made such that if you spread harmful, misleading information about COVID-19, that content would be enforced in some way. Either it would be taken down, it might be put behind a label, or the user, if they're a, a serial violator of rules on the platform, could be put into a timeout or suspended entirely. Uh, the second thing is around product. You know, how do you incentivize people to uh, share reliable information? How do you surface, amplify reliable information over disinformation? Uh, you know, is the platform kind of putting um, 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 its best foot forward in that regard? I think 
you know, you go back to like 2019, we contacted the HSE, I think from an Irish context, in the summer of 2019. And by September, October of that year, we had set up a search prompt with them around vaccines. So if you typed in vaccine, anti-vax, you know, terms that we worked with them on, we built a, a list of keywords with them. And that prompt, prompt was launched in October such that you type in any of those things, you'll get a, a box at the top of your search results that suggests that if you want to be informed about vaccines, go to the HSC website and here's a link. You know, uh, uh, amplifying the information from reliable, authoritative, credible sources is uh, broadly how we're approaching this. What are the challenges in in analyzing tweets and finding misinformation and in enforcing policy amidst a pandemic or an election? Well, since we started enforcing the COVID-19 misleading information policy, we have challenged 11 and a half million accounts globally. And challenge could mean anything from us thinking maybe there isn't a real person behind this account. You know, this could be coordinated, inauthentic activity, bot-like activity. And we say, you've got to prove you're a real person before you can start tweeting again. You mentioned, how do you parse this? You know, how do you assess the content? We're focused on the harm it could cause to people. If you're tweeting something like, uh, I believe the vaccine is ineffective. I believe that this, that, and the other. I believe that COVID isn't as dangerous as people say it is. Or I, I, I suggest, because I heard it from a friend, that you should ingest X substance you know, to cure it. That obviously can lead to offline harm. That's a violation of the policy, and that's actually the focus of the policy, and we'll take action on that. I should add, you mentioned for elections. you know, So the civic integrity policy or the policy around elections would be uh, such that is someone tweeting something that suggests that you should participate in this election by texting one, two, three, four for this candidate, whereas actually you need to go to the polling booth, uh, fill out the voting card, etc. cetera. Uh, so we want to intervene there where you could legitimately disrupt or undermine the election process, thus causing a kind of offline harm. So clearly, Rodan, you guys are working really hard on all these issues and it's tricky, right? But I do want to ask you about like if if the policies are right and you've got the right policies, you know, some people might say, like, are they being enforced strongly enough, often enough? Like journalists might say that, well, we're regularly finding things and they're only taken down after we report them to the platform, which isn't really supposed to be the job of a journalist. What would you say to someone who has that criticism? Well, we definitely over the last couple of years have worked to make technology, uh, the technology on our side better, such that the reporting burden on journalists, on users of all sorts is reduced. So now over 50% of the tweets uh, that are ultimately removed for a violation of our rules are surfaced initially by machine learning. If we use technology in a smart kind of way, such that we're recognizing abusive behaviors, behaviors that are intended to undermine the integrity of the conversation on the platform, that is inherently, as you can imagine, more scalable than looking at the context and the word-by-word content of every, every tweet. Because abusive behaviors, spammy behaviors, efforts to say, for example, get a conversation topic trending that has no business trending based on the organic conversation around it, those kind of things are easier to detect en masse uh, uh, and through machine learning than, again, having to parse each individual tweet and the context of it. Our efforts to uh, you know, reduce this reporting burden and to focus more on technological solutions is going to bring us beyond the current cycle where the conversation still, by and large, is about 
did you leave that content up or did you take it down and how quickly did you take it down? So I think our focus is going to be more on what content is amplified and what isn't. This question of decentralization is super interesting. You've rolled out Birdwatch. It's, it's allowing users to sort of get involved in the, in the concept of moderation. Can you talk a little bit about the goals for that, the plans, how you hope that will be a part of the solution? Yeah. So Birdwatch, as you mentioned, is uh, in a pilot stage right now. Uh, it is essentially a community-driven approach to moderation. And we are taking cues here from uh, platforms that have uh, sort of walked this path before us, you know, thinking of Wikipedia, which I personally use on a daily basis. Reddit has been a community moderated platform for many years. Twitter's approach in this respect will differ or be similar to them in, in, in some cases. So the gist of it basically is that you see content on the platform. You think that it constitutes misinformation, or maybe it's not like outright disinformation, but it, it definitely will mislead people. If you're participating in the Birdwatch pilot right now, you can add a note to the tweet based on the reaction that that note gets from other people who are participating in the Birdwatch pilot, it will be upranked or downranked as in its usefulness to pe by people, whereby you can uh, be brought to more authoritative sources by your fellow users. And you can see why there would be benefits here, right? Because it, a, it's more scalable. And the last thing I'd say is that we were told ourselves in a public survey, which got over 10,000 responses, Twitter put a survey out there when it was considering its, its, its policy development around misleading information. We were told that we don't want to hear from you, Twitter, that something is true or false. A peer-to-peer -peer system would probably offer people more confidence, but to link us to you know, RTE, Reuters, CNN, uh, whatever else, someone else who is who is commenting on this from a more credible point of view. Yeah, I'm really interested in some of the experiments Twitter has gone through at the moment. There's definitely uh, some ones to watch there. Now, we did try to talk to a Facebook representative. No one was made available, so we couldn't put some of these issues to them. But they did tell us that they're taking significant steps to fight the spread of misinformation using what they say is a three-part strategy. They say they remove content that violates their community standards, reduce the distribution of content marked as false by fact checkers, and inform people when content has also been marked as false. But I guess another challenge here is that if someone is steadfast in their belief in conspiracy theories for example these indicators i guess might not make a huge difference so technology does have to be part of the solution here every year we make new advances around things like artificial intelligence and machine learning that's partly what i'm doing at kinzen uh, i work as a journalist closely with my technology colleagues we work together to identify the spread of disinformation campaigns and we're working with some big platforms as they try to get ahead of the evolving conversations, hashtags and dog whistles used by disinformation spreaders every day. So clearly tech does have a big role to play in this. Next, we're going to hear from two Irish women who are working in this field. We're first going to hear from someone I know personally. My sister is Holly Kilroy and she's co-founder and executive director of the Centre for Digital Resilience, where part of her work is focused on using tech to combat the spread of misinformation. She told me about her work in the field, particularly around the last US election. So at the moment, we've worked on a campaign in the US. It was a campaign around the US election. 
on disinformation around the US election with 45 civil society organizations to collect, analyze and report on disinformation around what was, as we know, a quite a contentious election. Working together, those organizations uh, were able to essentially create a crowdsourced disinformation set. It, it helped essentially give a contextualized view of disinformation related activity in their communities. And then that then helped them enable um, early intervention and, and response. Your organization is using technology to help fight back against disinformation. So can you just t- talk to me a little bit about how you see technology as actually a help here? It's, a, it's part of the solution. I mean, technology is, it's obviously a vector for disinformation, but it can also help us identify it as well. So it, it goes without saying, in order to be able to counter disinformation, we have to be able to first understand it, monitor it and properly analyze it. The current response mechanisms um, that are in place for civil society to be able to better understand um, disinformation are quite ad hoc. Um, and we see them as failing in, in three key ways. The first is that um, disinfo data gathering is quite limited. Disinformation actually targets a lot of constituencies and groups of people that aren't well represented. It's increasingly being used in like closed API spaces and they're not really easily accessible by researchers or fact checkers. The data gathering isn't coming from the communities where often mis and disinformation is the biggest problem. The second problem is the analysis of that data. It's fragmented, it's incoherent, and that means that, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, data sets are, are kind of inconsistent. The third issue is that the disinformation data sets, the end data sets themselves are quite inaccessible, including the information being distributed. The channels of distribution is only available to specific groups of like researchers and journalists uh, and advocates. So often it doesn't filter back down again to the communities that might really need it. That obviously leads to three kind of obvious solutions. We know we need civil society needs an easier um, and more open way to collect disinformation data. We need a clearer way to organize that disinformation data across different groups and societies. And we need an easier and more open way to share back that disinformation data. So that's what the tool WaterBear, which CDR developed with our development partner Guardian aims to do that essentially helps people around the world gather uh, collect uh, and share evidence of disinformation as well as view and analyze the growing data set. So that was Holly Kilroy the co-founder and executive director at the Center for Digital Resilience and uh, we also spoke with Liz Carolyn the executive director of Digital Action an organization focused on strengthening democratic rights in the digital age. Liz has focused in her career on the impact of technology on our democratic rights. We first asked her about how online culture now plays such a big role in elections and what challenges that brings. Yes, so um, one of the big challenges that our electoral rules um, in Ireland and actually in in most democracies were kind of written in in the 90s, right, when electioneering was sticking up a poster or giving somebody a leaflet or knocking on a door. And that has changed completely with technology. So we saw in the recent US election that the online campaign is a major source of expenditure, but it's also a big part of where misinformation or all sorts of dodgy tactics, you know, pretending to be somebody else, attack videos, these kind of things can happen. Um, And the rules haven't haven't caught up. Um, And I I think that's, that's definitely the case in Ireland at the moment. 
what precautions do you think we need to take when when balancing looking at content moderation with the digital threats that there are to democracy and you know big social media companies having so much control there's probably two sort of paths this one is figuring out okay well what does you know regulation and and what are the kind of obligations that we want to have on platforms and um, for the health of our conversations and of how we communicate with each other i think the other important part though as well is um what happens offline and you know what is the other information that people are able to access um because i think you know people do have an understanding um that things that they read on online on, on social media platforms they don't hold the same weight as, as perhaps something that they might you know hear in person from a friend or from from a trusted source um, and one example that, that we see of this is actually when it comes to vaccine hesitancy which is obviously quite a big issue at the moment and in places like the UK which would have similar levels of online uh, misinformation around vaccines and um, there's still extremely high levels of take up of um, of vaccinations um, and one of the reasons behind that is that people trust the doctors so even though they may see a lot of misinformation online something like 95 percent of british people trust um uh, nhs doctors and so when they go into their doctor and they hear different information they they give that more weight and so so i think i think there's yeah there's the, there needs to be that two-pronged attack um which has to include well you know what are we doing offline and, and what are we doing with our own family and friends and and, and what what is our what is our media doing to help I think there are certain policy changes that can help. So um, at the moment, the European Union is actually pursuing a big overhaul of digital policy. Um, and that's less focused on, say, um, you know, rules around content or around specific actions. And, and instead, it's focused more on kind of like a like a harm, like a harm focused model. So it's sort of saying this isn't just about what people are, are doing online, it's about how you design the, the product and the platform so you know what's happening with algorithms that 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 they can sometimes you know choose to show more people poor quality information than good quality information we don't want policymakers to be getting into design of algorithms but what they can do is they can start to create incentives um so that so that basically we're designing these things better so that so that they favor good quality information um, I, I think as well, there's there's a lot that um that, that civil society can be doing to make sure that we have you know other trusted sources of information in the community. Um, and I think that's something that we all need to be doing as citizens as well. Um, you know, making sure that uh, we're better consumers of information online. You know, um, what's the responsibility that we take on then to inform the people around us too? That was Liz Carolyn, Executive Director of Digital Action there. And so that's it from the fourth and final episode in the Truth Matters podcast, A Guide to Misinformation. I've been journalist Della Kilroy. And I'm the Head of Editorial at Kinzen, Shane Creevy. We've been your co-hosts. Thanks for listening. And if you found some of this interesting, please do share it. All four episodes are available on the RT News website and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>